Just because you've picked it up on a test doesn't necessarily prove that that's what's causing Hashimoto's. But the fact that we know in the research that these are potential triggers, it makes sense that we deal with the infection. And in many cases, again, we do see the load go down and sometimes I'll see thyroid antibodies drop. They may not completely normalize, but we'll see the levels go down, see thyroid function improve. And of course, ultimately, do people feel better? Dr. Darren Ingalls is a licensed naturopathic physician, author, international speaker, and leading authority on Lyme's disease. He too is a former Lyme patient who overcame his own three-year battle with Lyme's disease. After having failed conventional medicine treatment and became progressively debilitated, Dr. Ingalls found that proper diet, lifestyle management, and natural therapies worked with his body to heal instead of against it. He then applied what he learned about his own healing journey to his own Lyme's patients and found that they recovered faster and with less side effects. Dr. Ingalls has now treated more than 8,000 Lyme patients using his novel approach, many who have gone on to live healthy, symptom-free lives. He's been featured in WebMD, Mind, Body, Green, Be Well, Thrive Global, and also has a podcast and is the author of The Lyme Solution, five-part plan to fight the inflammatory autoimmune response and beat Lyme's disease. Dr. Darren Ingalls, welcome to Thyroid Strong Podcast. First time we talked about Lyme's disease and I want to do like a quick run through again because you have such a wealth of knowledge and then we're going to talk about some other infections. So welcome to Thyroid Strong Podcast. Oh, well, thanks for having me back, Emily. So this is very timely. It's summertime. The kids are outside. Everyone's outside. For those of the people who are listening who don't know what Lyme's disease is, can you give us like a quick snippet? Sure. Well, Lyme disease is a bacterial infection that's primarily acquired through a tick bite. And we used to think it was something that people who lived in New England or the central part of the Midwest got. And we've now learned that really you can get it living anywhere, certainly in the United States. And it's really found on almost every continent outside of North America, with the exception of Antarctica. So it's the fastest growing infectious disease in the world. And when people get bit by this tick, this tick can transmit this bacteria through its saliva. It gets in your bloodstream and it can cause any number of different symptoms. In fact, there's over a hundred different symptoms associated with Lyme disease. They call it the great imitator or the great mimic because it looks like a lot of different things. So unfortunately, it's one of these infections that often people miss just because they might mistake it for something else. What are some of the most common symptoms that maybe if you went to a conventional medicine doctor, they would pick up? Well, the two symptoms that are really very specific for Lyme disease, one is what's called an erythema migrans rash or EM rash. It looks like a target or a bullseye. Well, you'll see sort of these alternating light and red rings around the rash. It's a flat rash. It usually doesn't itch, unlike, you know, a mosquito bite or something like that that might be raised and itchy. This tends to be flat and not itchy, at least not until the later stages. So that EM rash is very unique to Lyme disease. There's nothing else out there that causes that. Unfortunately, it's a very small percentage of people that actually get that rash when they get bit by a tick that carries Lyme. More often than not, people don't get the rash. But if you do get the rash, again, there's nothing else like that that causes it. The other symptom that's very unique to Lyme disease is what we call migratory joint pain. 
which means you know, one day my right shoulder hurts, then my left knee, then my right ankle, when it kind of moves around your body to different joints. Again, that's also very unique to Lyme disease. Beyond that, a lot of the other symptoms you know, overlap with a lot of other different illnesses. So you can get headache, fever, swollen glands, neuropathy or pins and needles, numbness in your hands and feet, migraines. You can get Bell's palsy where one side of your face starts to droop. You can get, you know, high fever, chills, uh, you know, your people with acute Lyme disease are acutely sick for other people. They don't necessarily get that acute illness. They'll get the slow insidious onset of symptoms. And for me, the big red flag is when we see a combination of arthritic symptoms with neurological symptoms. Again, there's very few things that cause belts. When people are complaining about neuropathy or balance problems, coordination issues, and they've got joint pain or muscle pain. That's a big red flag for Lyme disease. I heard a statistic thrown out that only 30% of the bites that transmit Lyme disease will have that rash. Is that accurate? It's probably even less. <laughs> I know it's funny. The CDC says that up to 80% of people who get bit by tick carry the rash. When you look at the research, the research suggests it's probably less than 46%. And those of us in clinical practice will argue it's probably less than 20%. So, you know, again, it's one of those things when people get it, we know that they have it, but more often than not, people don't get it. And there are other rashes associated with Lyme that are not the bullseye rash. Sometimes it's just a flat red rash. I think one of the unique things about it, though, is it tends to spread. That may start, you know, about the size of a quarter, maybe a little larger. And for me, I mean, I got Lyme disease and my first rash was about maybe about three inches in diameter. And by the time it got done, it was almost 18 inches in diameter. So it spread and got to be quite big, but it'll spread over the course of several weeks. It could be anywhere from three to six weeks. And again, that's kind of unique to Lyme. So I think you bring up a really important point with the joint pain because so many other things cause joint pain, right? So like Hashimoto's, that underactive thyroid component of Hashimoto's can cause joint pain, muscle aches. I think it's important to note that migratory joint pain. And I, as a chiropractor, when I have people come in and exactly what you said, one week their shoulder hurts, then the next week their knee is swollen and then their ankle, but there was no clear mechanism of injury. It right. sets off a red flag. And I think for every practitioner, it should set off a red flag. And for anyone listening who has Hashimoto's, just to kind of like put that in the memory bank, right? Because sometimes with Hashimoto's, the joint pain will come and go and we kind of just dismiss it like, oh, that's our diagnosis. Are there other insects that can transmit Lyme other than ticks? Well, I, I think most of us think, uh, agree that ticks are the primary carrier. There is some evidence that other biting insects can carry Lyme, mosquitoes, fleas, and so forth. However, these other biting insects can carry other things that look like Lyme disease that aren't necessarily Lyme. We know that you can get Bartonella from fleas and lice. You can get Babesia from other insects as well. So, you know, I think the overwhelming majority of cases do come from a tick bite, but there may be other biting insects that can transmit Lyme and some of these other co-infections. And I think, you know, yeah. very relative to your tribe, it's important to understand that Lyme is a major trigger for Hashimoto's in particular, or hypothyroidism. So, you know, Lyme's ability to disrupt your immune system is a major problem. And we see various autoimmune effects from Lyme disease. You know, we think that a lot of chronic Lyme disease is actually not the infection per se that's causing the problems, but it's actually the autoimmune effect. We know that Lyme can cross-react with your, the white and gray matter of your brain. It can cross-react with your joints. It can cross-react with your peripheral nerves. It can cross-react with your thyroid. So that ability to cause destruction in your body is really that autoimmune effect 
just by virtue of having that organism. So when we're talking about treatment, you know, it's not really just about killing the bug. You know, we have to deal with all these immune and autoimmune issues that it triggers. Yeah, I think especially with the symptoms, and especially because they're so similar, it can be hard to diagnose or as a patient, it can feel hard to diagnose. How do you approach it as a practitioner? working with patients every day? Well, you know, ultimately Lyme disease is a clinical diagnosis. I think this is the most grossly misunderstood aspect of Lyme is that people really depend on the blood test as the definitive answer that you do or do not have Lyme disease. Again, we know from the research that the blood test, honestly, it sucks. You know, it's less than, you know, 43% sensitive, which means it literally misses half the people that have Lyme disease. I was a microbiologist before I was a doctor. I used to do these tests for a living and it's a good test will be 96, 98% sensitive and specific. You know, you want the test to pick up the thing that you're looking for and you want to be sensitive enough that it actually picks it up if you do have it. And when you've got tests that has very poor sensitivity or very poor specificity, it's just not a great screening test. And, you know, in 40 years of research, you know, they've held this standard that this is the way you diagnose Lyme, but this test was never designed to be diagnostic. It was a way to monitor people that had known Lyme disease. We've got to get past the, the piece of paper and understand that, you know, if you've got clinical symptoms, and again, if you have a test that shows that you've been exposed to Lyme and you've ruled out other things, because again, Lyme looks like a lot of other autoimmune problems, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Yeah. Let's say... Someone goes outside, they do a tick check at night, and they find a tick on them. What would be the doctor-recommended steps of action? Yeah, if you find a tick on you, you know, you want to be very careful in pulling the tick off. I mean, hopefully you've got a pair of nice tweezers nearby. You want to grab the tick as close to where the tick is inserted into your skin. Lift it very, very gently. Don't try and yank it, tug it out. You can basically scare the tick and it might inject more of its saliva into you. So just keep pulling, pulling. Eventually the tick will let its jaws go. And then if you got the tick, you want to save the tick. If you save the tick, you can actually send it to a lab and they can test the tick to see if the tick carries Lyme and this host of other infections that can be transmitted with it. We know, we know from some of the research and the ticks up in New England, you know, more than 30% of them carry something else. So if you do get bit by a tick that carries Lyme, it might carry another infection. And again, as a practitioner, that's good to know. So we know exactly what we're dealing with. So you can save the tick and there's several labs, you know, there's tickreport.com, there's medical diagnostic labs, there's a few other that you can save the ticks, send it off. And it's relatively inexpensive to test for Lyme and all these co-infections. And, you know, it's not perfect, but at least it gives us an idea about what you may have been exposed to. And if you know it's a tick, and particularly if it's a deer tick, and you know, for the average person wouldn't know the difference between a deer tick, a wood tick, a dog tick, you can certainly go online and look at pictures and try and figure it out. But if you're not sure, again, that's where sending the tick in is helpful because they will tell you exactly what kind of tick it is and what's in it. But my approach is to treat until proven otherwise. We know that early treatment gives you the best results and prevents any kind of chronic problem. So particularly if someone knows they got bit by a deer tick, you know, we save the tick, send it off to the lab. But in the meantime, we start treatment until proven otherwise. Because the standard test out there is an antibody test, it can take up to a month for your body to make antibodies against it. So we've got very few tests that are true early detection. So until we give your immune system a chance to respond to the organism, we want to start treatment right away to ensure that it doesn't develop any further problems. Do you treat whether the tick is engorged or not? If the tick is embedded, definitely. There's this big question log, Mark, about how long does the tick need to be on you to transmit disease? Now, we know with Lyme, it probably is a function of hours. However, with other infections, it's a matter of minutes. 
So although it may not be Lyme itself, there may be something else that got transmitted by starting treatment. You know, we're not just treating Lyme. We're potentially treating these other co-infections because again, we don't know until we have an opportunity to test the tick and to test you and find out what you've been exposed to. And what would be the treatment for Lyme? Well, the conventional treatment is antibiotics. The CDC recommendation is basically for an adult doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice a day for two to three weeks. But what's kind of strange is that we know that Lyme is a very slow growing organism. You know, most bacteria in your body replicate every 10 to 20 minutes. So if you get strep throat or a staph infection, seven to 10 days of antibiotics will usually do the job because that's all you need to cover the bases. But because it's a rapidly growing organism, it's easy to do that. But for organisms that are slower growing, you often need a longer course of treatment. And just for example, if you get tuberculosis, they'll put you on a triple antibiotic cocktail for up to a year. And the reason is that it's a very slow growing organism. But to put it in perspective, most bacteria replicate every 10 to 20 minutes. TV replicates every 15 to 20 hours. Well, Lyme replicates every one to 16 days. So why we're willing to give Lyme patients two to three weeks of treatment, where we'll give TB patients a year of treatment, and Lyme is more slow growing than TB, it makes no biological sense. That's the conventional approach. Those of us in the Lyme world will, especially if it's acute Lyme, we'll treat for at least six to weeks, sometimes longer. Again, for me, I will start treatment until we get the tick report back, if they save the tick, and if they didn't, weren't able to save the tick, then we'll treat if we have an opportunity to test the patient, find out if they had exposure. And antibiotics are a way to do it. In my practice, often I use herbs. Herbs work really well, and they have less damage to the gut microbiome, less damage to the mitochondria. So it really kind of depends on the patient, what their preference is. I think with acute Lyme disease, this is a case where antibiotics are actually very well indicated. However, I have some people for any number of reasons where antibiotics may not be indicated or they just don't tolerate them. And herbs certainly are a very good option. For someone who doesn't save a tick and then gets the antibody test on themselves. How long from tick bite to getting that test? Because some people get a tick bite and then they get the test the next day or two days after. Yeah. I mean, I will usually wait at least a week and sometimes we're doing multiple tests. I mean, a week would be early. Usually it takes about a week to start developing antibodies. So that's kind of on the early end, but anywhere from one week to three weeks is where we try and get people tested. And sometimes we'll test people the week and if everything looks negative, we might test them two weeks later and just double check and make sure. So it really kind of depends, but a week is probably the minimum. There is a new test that just came, literally just came out. It's called T-Detect. And it's instead of looking at antibodies, it's looking at T-cell activation. And T-cells are part of your immune system that are your first responders. So at least in theory, this would pick up Lyme much earlier than the antibody test. So it's brand new. You. I honestly, I haven't used it yet with anybody, so I can't give you any feedback on whether it's good or bad. But at least for those people we think are in that very early window, it would be worth trying to see if we can pick it up a little bit earlier. In terms of testing, is there a lab that is considered more the gold standard than others potentially? Well, if you go to a regular reference lab like Quest or LabCorp, you know, we know that the test kits they use again aren't very sensitive. So there are labs that specialize in tick-borne illness. And I think the majority of us in the Lyme world use uh, Igenex, uh, which is a lab out of Palo Alto. I use a lot of a lab called Medical Diagnostic Labs in Hamilton, New Jersey. Igenex does great testing. The downside to them is that they don't take insurance unless you're Medicare. MDL takes all insurance pretty much. So it just saves people a little bit of money. I think that both great labs, they do great testing. 
Galaxy Labs, we use a lot if we're looking specifically for Bartonella. Yeah, between the two or three labs, I think they give us the best return on our investment for testing. So you mentioned earlier that Lyme disease can cause Hashimoto's. So obviously there's a genetic component to Hashimoto's. Right. And it's kind of like the genetic component, but then our environment pulls the trigger. What have you seen with your Hashimoto's patients? Second, specifically with Lyme or just in general? Because I think with Hashimoto's, we sometimes first think, okay, medication, manage the thyroid hormones, start to change potentially diet, lifestyle, and then sometimes the environmental factors that can put load on the body, I feel like are often overlooked or looked at last or down the road right. in terms of a treatment plan with a practitioner. Well, I think, you know, with Hashimoto's, we're always looking at, you know, what are the triggers? What's instigating this autoimmune process? And I think we would agree it's not necessarily just one thing. It's the load on the body. So genetics, diet, environmental toxins, mold, Lyme is just another factor. But I have a lot of patients, you know, because a lot of people get their thyroid routinely checked. And they've got blood work that prior to Lyme, their thyroid was fine. They had no evidence of Hashimoto's. After Lyme, now their TSH goes up. We see thyroid antibodies. And you know, what's the thing that changed? And consistently, I've seen this you know, with thousands of patients that they were thyroid normal prior to Lyme. And then afterwards, now they start having all these thyroid issues. So it's just another trigger. But in treating Lyme, if that is part of the cause, then often we do see thyroid antibodies normalize. We see thyroid function improve. Obviously, we're doing everything else, you know, that we would do with every other Hashimoto's patient, but there's that other aspect now that we have to deal with the infection. I've heard recently that there's a newer outcome from potentially a tick bite called alpha-gal. Have you heard this? Yeah. So the alpha-gal issue is actually not the same tick that causes Lyme disease. Alpha-gal is mostly from what's called the Lone Star tick. And when you get bit by a Lone Star tick, this causes a cross-reaction with this thing called alpha-gal, which is a protein that cross-reacts with beef. So it makes people like anaphylactic allergic to beef products. And it's just the craziest thing. I've seen now a few cases of people with this alpha-gal sensitivity. Uh, again, it's, it's kind of unrelated to Lyme disease. So people who get Lyme disease don't really get this alpha-gal sensitivity, but the other ticks can cause it. And then, yeah, now we have to treat people for their beef allergy, uh, which we do in our practice, but it's tough. Yeah, and it's, it's, just, it's just the craziest thing. An anaphylactic shock to eating beef? Is it also like being near cooked beef or? Usually it's with an ingestion of it. You know, they it's if they eat anything with a beef in it, uh, that will trigger, you know, some sort of allergic reaction. It's not necessarily to the sensitivity where if they smell it or if they're in the same room with it, I haven't seen that in my practice. You know, it's usually people who are eating it, but still because beef, beef products, a lot of people eat them. And again, it might be in something that you're unaware or actually had a little bit of beef protein in it. So people who develop this sensitivity just have to become extremely uh, careful about looking out to where beef products exist. Other than being careful, how else do you approach that treatment? So we use different types of immunotherapy in our practice. At that point, now they've been sensitized. So we try to desensitize them. And we primarily use a therapy called LDA or low-dose allergy therapy. LDA is actually um, made by a pharmacy and it's a food mix. So it actually has beef and then you know, 60 other different foods in the mix. So the concept behind it is that if you become allergic to some, one of the foods, we can try and desensitize you to that food. And if you're not sensitive to the other foods in the mix, well, who cares because you're not allergic to it. And it seems to be helpful for a lot of people with that alpha-gal sensitivity by 
treating the food and the dilution is so high that it doesn't trigger the reaction. There's technically some beef in it. It's not enough that it actually makes people feel sick. So that's been the safest way that we've been able to approach it to try and help desensitize people against that alpha gal. It takes a while. It's not like it gets done in a matter of a few months. Often it takes several years to desensitize people. But again, if it prevents them from having that anaphylactic reaction, well, that's a win. Because from a conventional allergy standpoint, they don't do anything. They just say, you're sensitive, you're allergic, don't ever eat a beef product again. And that's the way it goes. But we try to help improve people's immune tolerance to it. And in many cases, it does help reduce their allergy and sensitivity. Going back to Lyme's disease, for people who do have chronic Lyme's disease, I feel like sometimes there's this desperation to try any and all treatment. <laughs> Are there any treatments that you would potentially recommend staying away from or certain treatments that you would be like, yes, this is legitimate? Have you come across that? You know, I think I've seen everybody do everything. And it's one of those things, like you said, you know, there's a million things you could do. You could spend a hundred grand a month easily on Lyme treatment if you had the money and the time and the energy. Uh, the reality is, is that a lot of the treatments that tend to be, I'll say the high ticket ones, the ones that tend to be the most expensive, they aren't necessarily the most effective. And in many cases, I think they're minimally effective. I think the people who honestly do a lot of these high ticket treatments in their office promote it because it's a money maker. But I mean, for me, it's very foundational things, I think, that give the best results. It's diet. It's gut health. It's herbal medicine. It's getting good sleep. It's moving your body. All these things to help correct your terrain give you the best long-term results. I'm not really interested in a therapy that might make you feel better for a couple of days. And sometimes you got to get people out of the weeds if they're really suffering, but I want something that's going to correct the problem long-term. And a lot of the big ticket therapies out there don't necessarily do that. I mean, you know, we do ozone therapy in our office. We have a hyperbaric chamber. You could do IV, UVA, UVB therapy. Again, there's a lot of very high-tech stuff. And everything works to varying degrees to various people. And there's no one treatment I've ever seen helps everybody. But I've seen a lot of things that help most people. And again, for me, it's let's start with the least invasive, most effective, most cost-effective. And then we work up from there. If we need to use some of the more advanced therapies, because we're not getting the results we want, great. But it's not generally where I would start. So, I mean, I wouldn't start someone on ozone therapy. I think ozone's great for acute Lyme disease. I've not seen it be terribly successful for chronic Lyme disease. It's very expensive. Same thing, hyperbaric oxygen is great. I've had some good success, but it's expensive and it's time consuming. So again, it's not generally where I start. So until we get all these foundational things in place first, I think people can probably wait on maybe some of the more expensive therapies and then see how you respond. Because sometimes it's amazing how well people do when you get their gut working better, when they get them eating the right foods. It makes such a big shift in their body that often, again, we don't have to do the more high tech stuff. For people who don't know what ozone is, can you give a quick description? Yeah, I mean, ozone is a gas. It's basically, you know, oxygen is O2, ozone is O3. It's three oxygen molecules. And ozone itself has a lot of health benefits. I mean, it's antimicrobial. It helps with tissue repair. Ozone can be administered through different ways to help, depending on what tissue you're trying to affect. And again, it, it has a lot of benefit. It's interesting. It, it's demonized here in the U.S., yet they use it widely throughout the world for various conditions. And again, it is effective and there's, there's a lot of good research on it. 
But again, it just, it tends to be fairly expensive. You know, there is a way to give ozone intravenously. You can inject ozone. You can put it up just about any orifice. Again, for Lyme treatment, again, my experience with it. Again, I'm I'm a Lyme patient. I went through Lyme myself and I did ozone therapy. And personally, I never found it did anything for me. I've had other patients that they feel good for a handful of days afterwards, but then they kind of slip back. So again, I I think as a first line therapy, that wouldn't be one that I would jump to. But again, get these foundational things done first. That's the most important part. For sure. We talked about infections adding load, and there are obviously more infections just Lyme disease that Hashimoto's ladies can struggle with if they've been exposed. So some examples would be Epstein-Barr virus is a really common one, herpes simplex, H. pylori. When you are seeing patients and they have a known Hashimoto's diagnosis, how do you start to potentially uncover exposure to these other infections? Yeah, I mean, fortunately, a lot of these things we can do through a simple blood test or maybe a stool test for like something like H. pylori. And again, I expect that people might have other symptoms. I mean, for people who have H. pylori infection, often they have stomach complaints, they get heartburn, they get reflux, and they have Hashimoto's. Okay, that might be an indication that you're dealing with H. pylori. If someone has lower intestinal problems, they get chronic diarrhea, chronic abdominal pain. Maybe it's Campylobacter. If they've got swollen glands, they get intermittent fever and they have Hashimoto's. Well, maybe it's Epstein-Barr virus, maybe it's herpes simplex. We're looking at the collection of all the symptoms, you know, not just Hashimoto's by itself. That gives us some clinical clues. And again, we can run blood tests to see, do they have antibodies against these different viruses or other bacteria? Or, you know, maybe we'll do a stool test to try and pick up some of these gastrointestinal bugs. But it's really a pretty simple process to try and help identify if you've got these other infectious agents that might be potential causes. Now, just because you've picked it up on a test doesn't necessarily prove that that's what's causing Hashimoto's. But the fact that we know in the research that these are potential triggers, it makes sense that we deal with the infection. And in many cases, again, we do see the load go down and sometimes I'll see thyroid antibodies drop. They may not completely normalize, but we'll see the levels go down, see thyroid function improve. And of course, ultimately, do people feel better? How do you create a hierarchy of what to treat first? Because I think a really good practitioner will step-by-step treat things one by one versus maybe a newer practitioner will just try and treat everything at once. How do you go about creating like priorities around what gets treated first? Kind of the same for Lyme. You know, diet and gut uh, are the foundation. We know that leaky gut is a potential cause for pretty much any autoimmune disease. And knowing that, you know, your gut microbes play an important role on modulating your immune system and the development of any autoimmune problem. So again, for anyone who's got chronic GI issues, that is a potential problem in an autoimmune disease. And then, of course, again, you know, what you eat is important. So I test a lot of my patients for food sensitivities because, again, that's a big add to their load. So between food, diet, food sensitivities, gut, that's always pretty much where I start for Hashimoto's. And then beyond that, then we start looking into, okay, what are the other potential triggers? Is it a toxic trigger? Are we looking at mold, mycotoxins? And again, that kind of depends on where they live or where they have lived, what kind of exposure they had, other toxic exposure. Did you grow up near a farm? Did you live on a golf course? Did you get exposure to pesticides, herbicides? And then again, we can start testing for infection. So again, a lot of it's an environmental overview. Where did you live? Where did you grow up? 
that kind of thing. And then beyond that, what other potential exposures have you had? And it's just teasing through that. So it really does become, I'd say, kind of an individual approach. Diet and gut for me is pretty much everybody. And then beyond that, it's what's unique to that person that gives us clues onto what those underlying triggers are. Is there anything specific to diet that you start to recommend to heal the gut? Someone has a leaky gut. You know what? I think we all kind of preach kind of a similar diet, I think. You know, I, I've read, I think, every book out there on autoimmune disease, you know, between my book, Amy Meyer's book, Isabella Wentz, I mean, everybody. I think we're all kind of promoting mostly plant-based diet, get rid of all of the junk food, get rid of all of those foods we know that tend to be aggravating to the immune system. It's kind of the same. I mean, I am a fan of an alkaline diet. Uh, it's basically what that means is you eat certain foods as they break down your body, they can make your cells alkaline, they can make them acidic, or they're kind of neutral. We know from cell biology that your cells generally function best in an alkaline state. The exception of your skin, your stomach, your bladder, and for women, the vaginal area, which are very acidic, that's to help protect against outside invaders. The rest of your body is more or less alkaline. And we've got research that when your cells are in an alkaline state, all the enzymes work the way they're supposed to. The cell functions kind of at its highest level. You get better tissue repair. So it just makes sense to me that if we're eating this way, we're giving your body at the most cellular level the best opportunity to heal. And so I've kind of broken it down to three categories that there's category one. These are foods that are very alkaline forming in your body. And again, this isn't about the pH of the food. Like lemons and limes are acidic. If I squeeze lemon juice on pH paper, it'll turn acid. But it, when you eat lemons and limes, they break down your body and actually make you very alkaline. So again, not about the pH of the food, but how they break down your body. So yeah, so category one are foods that when they break down, they make you very alkaline. You'll find it's a lot of vegetables. There's some nuts and seeds and legumes and so forth. Category two are foods that are neutral to maybe mildly acidic. So you'll find a lot of fruit. All animal protein falls in that category. So I try and tell people to keep it down to about 20, 25% of their dietary intake. And so if you look at your plate divided in quarters, category two should be like a quarter of your plate. So it's not that you're not eating these things. It's just, they're not the bulk of your diet. And then category three are really foods that are very acid forming. So it's a lot of junk food, processed food, dairy products, coffee, fortunately. It's really easy for people to measure this because you can get some pH strips at the pharmacy. 30 minutes after you eat, just go pee on the strip and see what your urine pH is. We try and shoot for a urine pH of 7.2 or higher. And that gives us a pretty good idea that your body's in that more alkaline state. And again, clinically, my experience with it has been quite good. Dr. Terry Walls, the Walls Protocol, has a diet that's very similar. Her diet's a bit more restrictive than kind of what I promote. But in the end, I think it's doing a lot of the same things is that you're, you're talking about high nutrient dense foods, low processed foods. Ultimately, I know her diet because I've had my patients measure it does make your body very alkaline. And you know, she's a bigger fan of limiting like high lectin foods like legumes and nuts and seeds and things like that. I'm not so much in the lectin camp, but at the end of the day, again, I think it's about eating whole foods. The less hands that touch your food, probably the better. If you can't read an ingredient on the label, don't eat it, that kind of thing. For the listeners who are listening in who have Hashimoto's, maybe they have struggled with chronic Lyme. You are on the other side of this, right? You had Lyme's disease and now you're on the other side. Yeah. I mean, I got bit by tick in 2002 and, you know, it took me really three plus years to feel like I got my life back, but eventually got to the point where I was symptom free. So for people who are in the fight, it feels like it's daunting at times. 
But the beauty of being human, I suppose, is that it's built into our DNA to heal. We just need to get these obstacles out of the way to allow that process to happen. So that's why I talk so much about really fixing the terrain, getting down to the most basic tissue and cellular level, because let's create an environment that's hospitable for healing, not hospitable for infection to overrun you. And, you know, even with Lyme and we could say with every other infection, I mean, COVID put a hundred people in a room that all get exposed, you get a hundred very different responses. If the germ is problem, why do we get such varying responses to that germ? And I think a lot of it is the terrain. So how do we fix the terrain in a way that these germs just don't, again, overrun our body? I love that message. Darren, thank you. You're such a wealth of knowledge. Where can people find you? You can find me at DarrenInglesND.com. And uh, we'd love to share with your audience that you know we're launching. I've got a free Lyme mini class. And it's basically, I've developed four products with Allergy Research Group. And these supplements are really designed to help people with Lyme disease. So I created a little mini class around that that's free. I'll drop a link in for you guys to check it out. If people are really interested, I have a much longer, bigger Lyme class that kind of walks you through all the aspects of Lyme treatment. But I think this free mini class is kind of a good introduction to what we're trying to achieve that we'd love for people, if they're interested, to check it out. Great. Thanks, Emily. If you enjoyed this episode or even learned just one new piece of information to help you on your Hashimoto's journey, would you do me a huge favor? Rate and review Thyroid Strong Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you used to listen in to this podcast and share what you liked. Maybe you learned something new. And if you didn't like it, well, shoot me a DM on Instagram, Dr. Emily Kybird. I read and respond to every single DM. I truly believe all feedback is good feedback, even the ugly comments. If you're interested in joining the Thyroid Strong course, a home workout program using kettlebells and weights, where I teach you how to work out without the burnout, go to dremilykybird.com forward slash TS waitlist. You'll get all the most up-to-date information on when the course launches and goes live, special deals and early access bonuses for myself and my functional medicine doctor friends. Again, dremilykyber.com forward slash TS waitlist. I hope to see you on the inside, ladies.